Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and the renewal of our world. We're so glad that you're listening. When do you say the phrase, think about, think about your life and just kind of over the course of your life, when do you say the phrase, she did it, he did it, or they did it? Maybe it's a plural, it's a group, they did it. And I'm not talking about like calling out some, somebody, like their bad behavior, or, or telling the police, he did it. I mean, I mean like, like something you're, that's exciting, something remarkable you're celebrating. And you're like, wow, she did it. Maybe it's a test. Like a, when the, one of your kids passes a test that they were saying, Reagan just passed a test she was studying her brains out for for a couple months, and I've texted her, girl, you did it. Or maybe it's you, you close a sales deal at work, and your, your family's like, sweetheart, or dad, why, mom, you did it. I think we say it maybe, maybe most often in the world of sports, especially when an underdog when a team that is not supposed to win is playing, you know, the, the Tom Brady's of the world or an athlete who's, who's just not expected to compete well wins. We're like, wow, she did it. I remember, this is going to date me, in 1980, it's one of the early, early sports memories that I have, the Winter Olympics. You know what I'm going to say if you're 48 or older? Uh, our, our U.S. hockey team which was only then college students, college athletes, was going to play the Soviet Union. And it was the Soviet Union, you know, in our day, we're kind of the world superpower. When I grew up as a kid, we were one of the two superpowers, but the real superpower was the Soviet Union. They were bigger and badder in every way, and their military was the biggest, we thought, and the most daunting, and they were secret and dark. No one could enter the, you know, the, the country of the Soviet Union. We didn't know what was going on in there, really, and, and they were dominant even in sports. And there's just no way we're going to beat the Soviet Union. And when we did, everybody was like, they did it. We did it. And if you're as old as me, you remember that. Like, what? It was just shocking. And it, it actually kind of had the symbolic shift, I think, geopolitically. Like, wow, wait a minute. Maybe they're not the superpower, we thought. When it comes to... What we celebrate at Easter is God accomplishing, what God accomplished, what he changed, the way he altered the future of the world. I think it's hardest for you and me to fully accept that God defeated hurt and death when we experience on this planet pain. When we're experiencing pain, when we're going through something that's challenging or maybe beyond challenging, it's harder for us to grasp or understand that God has done something remarkable that's changed everything. And this takes me to the second. We looked last week at, at my first, the first of two real challenges I had early in my faith with Matthew 27, the story of Easter by Matthew's account in chapter 27. And if you missed last week, you can catch up easily on our website. It takes you right to our podcast uh, where I questioned for a long time, why didn't Jesus come down from the cross when he's being taunted and mocked? We'll believe in you if you come down. You're, you save people. Save yourself. Why didn't he come down from the cross? We dealt with that last week. Today I want to look at Matthew 27. A few verses later in verse 46, Jesus has been tortured. 
after agonizing in the garden in prayer, saying, Father, is there another way? Is there, is there something else we can do than me enduring the crucifixion? But not my will, your will be done. And the torturous, still to this day, sociologists tell us that Roman crucifixion is probably the worst form of death the world has ever known. And Jesus endures this. He's hanging on the cross. And after all of this, in verse 46, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is the Aramaic, his, the Aramaic language, which meant, which translates into, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I remember young in church, whenever Easter time or whenever this was read, or I would occasionally read it or in our youth group, it just there's something dark about this that I never felt settled about. I think it's the darkest statement in Scripture. Jesus has only been beautiful and presented a whole different paradigm for the whole world. Of who God actually is. What his character is like. He heals and restores and he announces I've come to renew life. My kingdom has come to renew and eventually one day those who follow me will experience the renewal of all things. We will actually be back in the garden. We will be back in that creative space of God's presence and complete, complete beauty. Jesus announces this. He demonstrates it. He is flawless in his representing God. That's what we were created to be. You and I were supposed to be full, complete images, reflections of God, of God's image. And none of us did it. No one in history has done it. That's why Jesus had to be fully human. God becoming fully human so that a human would finally do what we're called to be. He does it. You would think, wouldn't you? Have you ever thought this, like I struggled with early in my faith, that man, after never a misstep, always speaking integrity, always demonstrating pure love, being completely selfless, selfless to the point that he would be crucified and tortured, wouldn't there be a glimmer of good? Doesn't this story end? This is the last thing we know that Jesus says. A little bit later, a few moments later, he cries out again. We don't know what he says Next, but what we do know, the last words of Jesus that, that, that are recorded are, my God, my God, Father in heaven, why have you forsaken me? Why does it end that way? Don't you expect right before Jesus dies or there, there's some culmination that there's like this announcement, look what my son has done. Or God the Father comes close to him and we see that, oh, oh, the Father's close to him. As he dies, he's going to be comforted. In the, why is the last thing that Jesus says is, I feel abandoned by my father? This messed with me. Love, 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 perfection, beauty. I'm going to follow Jesus. This is amazing. The story only gets better. It only gets better. Wait, at the very end, after enduring all that he endured, he's abandoned? And then I questioned a couple weeks ago, I you know, I've always assumed the word forsake, forsaken, means to be abandoned. So I actually looked it up. I went to just our English, and sure enough, first, first word is, defin is the, de uh, 
the definition of, of forsaken is to be abandoned or to be renounced. Or for someone to turn their back on you is to be forsaken. This is what Jesus is saying about the Father in the last moments on the cross. When some of those standing there heard this, so I'm continuing in verse 47, they said, oh, when he calls out, God, have you forsaken? Why have you forsaken him? He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, we don't know what this statement was, he gave up his spirit. Jesus died. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of their tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And then, of course, we have other instances, many other instances where people encounter Jesus alive after the resurrection. Paul in 1 Corinthians says in one, in one moment, on one occasion, over 500 people encountered Jesus alive after the resurrection. So we understand where the story ends. We have the privilege, we have the benefit of understanding 2,000 years later because of history and the part of the world we live in and we have the totality of Scripture. We understand how the story ends. But if you're there... If you're one of Jesus' followers, if you're one of the multitude that followed him through the crucifixion, down that street that's become very sacred, the Via Della Rosa, where Jesus carried the cross and then out to Golgotha, and you're there witnessing, can you imagine the last thing your Lord and God, the Messiah, who's proven himself over and over, and he's come to restore and give life, the last thing that we know that he cries out to God is, why have you renounced me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why have you abandoned me? This really, I just couldn't get this straight in my head for a long time. Years ago, when I was like, I, I, I love Jesus. I really love him. I believe he came for me. I believe he brought good into the world and he's calling me to follow him. But how could the father do this? Now we learn early in God's story. This is just kind of a point of review. And if this is new for you, we'll talk about this again in the near future. I know we will. But really as just a, a summary review, we learn early in the story of, of God in scripture that sin... Here's that ugly word, and we don't like to use that word because it seems to call us a bad person. Sin isn't actually calling you a bad person. Sin describes something that's missing. You are broken. There's something incomplete now about you and me. Sin is the broken, selfish human control that attempts to replace God's character and God's control. That's, that's what sin is. Sin is us... Deciding my way, my response in this situation is better than what Jesus' character wants to be in me. God's character calls for patience. God's character is calling for forgiveness. I want to hold this over their head. I want to, re I want in my I want to get defensive, or I want to. Sin is so subtle, and yet it's so destructive. It it destroys our connection with God. We were made, designed to be the image of God. 
in conversations at work, in the neighborhood. As a parent, in your marriage, just through life, we were supposed to be the perfect image of God. It's almost hard to fathom that in the world we live in today. And you think about your life and your mistakes and your choices like, what? I was supposed to be the perfect. That was how you were, that was the intention for you and me. God cannot be present with brokenness. He can't. It might seem judgmental or harsh, like he can't be, I mean, nobody's perfect. In the garden, before we chose selfishly, nobody would have said, well, we're only human. We would have said, we're human. Being fully human is to perfectly reflect everything that God is. Now we live in a world, after humans have chosen selfishly, where we say, well, we're only human. Nobody's perfect. Don't we say those things? Well, God can't be in the presence of sin, of selfish choosing. It's not, judge, it's not him being judgmental of us. It's, it's like saying the sun can't shine in the nighttime. You could say, well, it should, or you could debate it. It can't. If it shines in the nighttime, it's not nighttime anymore. God can't dwell in ugly, in selfishness. He can't be present with it. There's no aging in God. There's no disease in him. There's no corruption. There's no pride. And so what does a God do? What does this God do? The perfect God, the creator God. This leads us to animal sacrifices, which just, if, you, if, you, if you've been kind of a casual observer about faith or maybe the Old Testament, it just seems super morbid. God devised in the ancient world when, you know, we live in a day where we understand our cognitive life is in our brain. We understand this from science. We know that the heart, the, the heart, our physical heart beats and we have blood pressure and those kinds of... We understand more of how the human body and how mammals function and live. In the ancient world, blood was considered the, the totality of, of a being's life. If you had your blood in you, you were alive. If your blood was spilled, your life was running out of you. And so God devised this, this way for an innocent animal to have its blood shed in place of broken human character. So the innocent, in fact, the, the father, the head of the household, would look the lamb or the ram into the eyes. He would absorb the innocence while this is an innocent animal. This animal's done nothing to deserve what's about to happen. That animal's blood would be spilled, the life would run out of it, and it would, it would temporarily cover over the death of the family, the spiritual death, the relational death, the emotional death, the death of ugly attitudes, our selfish choosing. And it would allow temporarily God to be close to humans again. And then Jesus became the lamb. He becomes the lamb, the innocent one whose blood would be spilled so that our past, present, and future, sometimes hard to get your head around, but your future selfishness, selfish choosing, living out not the character of God, but our own character, our own control, 
His blood covers all of our death so that we can be alive again. Okay, that's, that's a summary of what Jesus has done on the cross, right? I wanted to just look at a couple of ingenious, it's, a, it's amazing how ingeniously God did a couple of things with the cross. Stay with me here. If you've heard the Easter story and you're thinking, this is where in church, I, you know, I, this sounds familiar to me, so I'm going to think about what I'm having for lunch, or I'm going to think about, you know, what I'm going to do in the yard a little bit, or try to go to the, the chipping range. Would you say, Rod? Yeah, okay. Stay with me. It's ingenious. It's, 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 it's the most genius thing I've ever been taught or understood what God did with the cross. One, how severely he dealt with our human brokenness. And this speaks to his justice. You may not know this, you may not consciously be aware of this, but you want God, you desire God to be just. You do, we, we, we do. We live in a world where we want God to right wrongs. We want to see marginalized people who are being left out, we want to see them included. We want to see God right a broken world. That's that, our inner sense of justice. We want God to do what's right. Which means we also want him to, we don't use this word much, we want him to properly punish. And you may think, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm thinking about that thing three years ago. I'm thinking about that decision I made. I, I don't want God to punish when you think about other people, you kind of do. Amy and I just watched the Netflix, the new series about the Boston Marathon bomber. And, you know, we thought, well, should we watch this? We know the story. It was fascinating how much we didn't know. The backstory, and it's just, you know, a three-part deal that just sucked us in in the beginning. If, if, if the police had decided, you know what, we caught the guy, he's young, He's told us he's going to try better. He's going to do, he's not going to hurt, any, he's not going to kill anybody else. We're going to give him another chance. You and I would be like, what? He killed a lot of people. Even if it was a friend of yours. If a friend of yours was convicted of some, something awful, and you were like, I'm going to miss it, he's going to be in prison. Oh, wait, the police have said, no, we're going to give you another chance. There's an inner sense in you that, wait, that's not right. That isn't right. We desire to live in a world that's just. And God is so not able to entertain our human selfishness, our human need for control, our desire, our attempt for control. He can so not be present with it. It, it has to be severely dealt with. And man, the cross is severe. I mean, it's brutal. And yet, he's also loving. The cross is also God's perfect love. He's just in dealing with the consequence, the punishment needed for us choosing selfishly outside of the beauty, the perfection of God. And while being just, God decides, I'm going to rescue humans by becoming myself, me, myself. I'm going to become the punishment. He became our punishment. And there's something else that's ingenious, and this is how we're going to lead to the Lord's table today. 
There's something else ingenious, and when this clicked with me, as I've done hundreds of times now with Scripture, where Scriptures that were so confusing to me are so, it felt so unlike God. I read a page, it's just beautiful. I want to follow this Jesus. The next page, look what he did. He included women in a day where no leaders included women. Wow! The next page is just more and more compelling. And then I get to a place like this and I'm like, wait a minute. The father abandoned him? I understand the separation. He can't entertain sin. Jesus became our sin. So much so that the father is now distant from his own son. I understand that theologically, but there's something emotional in me that's like, how does God do that? All right, here's the third ingenious thing about the cross. It's just, if you're still with me here, this is mind-blowing. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for anybody who's a student of scripture, or maybe you've even heard me reference this previously, Jesus is quoting, he's not just crying out in agony, he's in agony. And he feels the weight of separation from the Father. So this is a genuine statement. I'm not close, for the first time in forever, I'm not close with the Father. But he's also quoting scripture. He's quoting Psalm 22, a psalm of David. And he's not just quoting Psalm 22, he's praying it. And it's remarkable when you look at what Psalm 22 says. He doesn't just say the first line of Psalm 22, 1. He, he, he says the first line, but he's referring to the entire first verse. Let's look at the whole of David's first statement in Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, David says, why have you forsaken me? We see a lot of context where David writes honest psalms. The enemy's approaching, or they're advancing on the city. Or, God, I've prayed night after night, and I haven't seen you respond. There's a lot of honest psalms from David, and we know the context. We don't know the context here. We don't know if somebody's advancing on him or if he's been betrayed by a family member. We don't know what the circumstance is, but we know that David is expressing, have you abandoned me? For anybody who came in here today feeling overwhelmed, like I, I'm holding on by a thread, I believe God is there. I believe the story of Jesus is good. I just can't figure out why the pain, why does the struggle not end? Maybe this message is just handcrafted by God for you today. We don't know David's circumstance, but the, the, the full verse, the full statement of David is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? This is what Jesus is referring to. He just says the first part on the cross. And you're like, what? Okay, so he's not just crying out in agony. At least he's quoting scripture. I used to think this maybe somehow makes it a little better. Jesus has suffered and endured all of this for me, and now he's crying out, I'm separated from you, Father. Why have you abandoned me? Well, now I know at least he's quoting scripture. Like somehow that religiously makes it better, maybe. Jesus isn't trying to be religious by quoting scripture. He's praying the first line of a psalm of David that says something remarkable. And where we, you and I typically stop is, we, we typically stop by saying, oh, he's quoting the first line of Psalm 22.1. What we don't often do is read all of Psalm 22. 
And this is what's ingenious about Jesus. The last thing he says on the cross after all the cruelty and after living only pure beauty in total reflection of the Father, the last thing he says isn't just, oh, look how this awful story is ending horribly. Look at the anguish and pain I'm in. He's calling to people like you and me who know what Psalm 22 says that tells us, wait, God's up to something. Even in the darkest moment, he's up to something powerful. Because that's the story of Psalm 22. David says, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. But he continues. I said this already. Jesus isn't quoting Psalm 22. He's praying it. He's giving us a clue to what is in his heart, what's in the understanding of Jesus in his final moments before he dies on the cross. He's giving us a clue that this whole scene of the cross is more ingenious than you could possibly imagine. Read Psalm 22, people. That's what he's saying. It starts bad. Pay attention to how it ends. That's what Jesus is saying in his last statement. Verse 4. I'm, I'm not going to read the whole psalm. We're going to hit some points here. Like David, in Psalm 22, Jesus he could have quoted any psalm. He could have quoted any place in the Old Testament. He quotes, he, he prays the beginning of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 references the past. David says, in you our ancestors put their trust. He said, God, I feel abandoned by you. I call out to you. I don't see you answering me. Why aren't you answering my cries and anguish? But then we get to verse 4 and David says, in you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. I'm remembering that. When, when life was bleak, when they came to the edge of the Red Sea, when the greatest army on earth was approaching the Israelites. And David is now writing, as he often does in the Psalms, wait a minute. Then there was the time where you showed up. It looked like there was no hope, but God delivered. David's tone has changed already by verse 4. To you, they cried out. The Israelites cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. This cried out, they cried out. This is a common reference in scripture that refers to the heart of God always listening when we cry out. When we cry out in pain, when we cry out in hurt, when we cry out in sorrow for what we've done or how ugly we've been. When we cry out to God, he's always listening. Exodus 3 is a great example. God calls Moses at the burning bush, go. Go to Pharaoh. Call, tell him to let my people go. I've heard the cries of my people and I've come down to rescue them, we're told in Exodus 3. David's remembering this. Wow, when, when your people cried out in the past, you always delivered them. Psalm twenty-two twenty-four. 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. David's now in this full remembrance, like, I know what you do. I know what you do in history. Then David's focus shifts to the future. Psalm 22, he shifts to the future. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember 
and turn to the Lord. And all that, this is David who just said in verse 1 and 2, verses 1 and the beginning of Psalm 22, where are you? I feel totally abandoned by you. By verse 27, he's saying all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. That's how remarkable your work is. There is a day coming where every nation on earth is going to bow down before you because you have figured out a way to rescue us out of harm, out of ugly, out of pain. What God does, how he responds, the plan he reveals will leave earth in awe. It will leave us bowing before him like, ah, this is what you were doing. When the pain in my body, when that relationship was so hard, when I felt so betrayed, you were at work, even when I couldn't see it. This is what you do. You work to restore in a broken world. And I see now that that's what you were doing. David is now telling that future. Look at verses 29 through 31. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And we hear that in sports. Like, wow, they did it. Wow, she actually pulled that. The ultimate, it has been done, someone did it, is going to be everyone. All of us are going to say, we chose selfishly, we broke planet Earth, we wanted life our way, it doesn't work. That isn't life. God loved us so much, he figured out a way to free us from ourselves. Now, think about what Jesus said on the cross. The last thing we know he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A direct quote from Psalm 22. It's as if people who aren't really paying attention to the story of God, they're not going to, they're going to hear anguish. They're going to hear mysterious. God apparently used them to do miracles, but didn't show up in the, the final big last moment. But for those of us who are paying attention to the voice of God, we're like, wait a minute. That's the beginning of Psalm 22. My God, why have you forsaken me? But that psalm turns into, but wait a minute. I feel forsaken right now. I feel abandoned by you right now. But that's not what you do. History shows me that in the worst of moments, you actually show up. You actually deliver. You rescue. There's a work. There's a plan unfolding that I don't see right away. Oh, in the future, the Spirit of God has told me the future will have all generations speaking even to those yet unborn. He's done it. He has figured out a way to turn death and corruption and corrupt human hearts into beautiful hearts fully alive reflecting him. I don't know. I don't know if this grabs you the way it does me. This to me is... I'm like, I'm following this God. Because pain can, uh, life can be painful sometimes. And there are nights where I wonder, God, are you listening? God, why the trouble? Why, why? I don't understand. Why me? There's times where people can hurt you. 
You know, we refer a lot to marriage. Marriage is, I think marriage is the, the relationship on planet Earth that I think reveals our ugly the most. And that's why Amy and I are so open about some of our struggles over the, years, the early years, just some of our deep struggles. We just were, we were just realizing, wow, I thought this was going to be fun with you. I just thought it was going to be fun. I don't like you. I mean, there was a lot of that in our early years. She didn't like me either. No, I know that. I, I knew that. That was, that was really clear. It, it just... <laughs> It's, it, it, it's, it's amazing to see the beauty of God when you allow him to do something in your heart. When you say, God, I want you to show up today. I want you to solve the job crisis. I want you to fix this. I want you to make them say they're sorry. When we say, you know what, God, you're doing something inside of me. I don't understand it right now. But like Psalm 22, when I feel forsaken by you, I know the pattern. I know you're at work. And I am going to be one of the people who says to the people around me, bowing before God in all eternity, he did it. He's done it. He's given me life out of hurt and challenge and being a broken human and broken planet Earth. So I'm going to invite our band to come as we prepare to move to the table. The Lord's table. I want to read this. This this is one simple statement. I try not to read just a verse by itself. Um, pastors refer to this as proof texting, but this is this is a. I think it is a, a really good summary that Paul gives us of what Jesus did on the cross. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the rightness. Of God in Christ. That word righteous can sound so heavy and churchy, but it means what's pleasing, what's right to God. We can actually become, in your language and relationships, in your your dreams, your memories of what's been wrong or what was wrong with you. In every part of you, he can make you right in his eyes. In this line, God, God made Jesus, the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us. Hanging on the cross, Jesus became our sin. He took on all of our sin. So that we no longer have to carry that. When, he, when the Father sees us, he sees the sacrifice of the Lamb just constantly, perpetually covering us. We're now alive. Period. You follow Jesus, you trust him, you trust his sacrifice, you're alive. And in our struggles, we want to question that. In our hurt, in our moments of, God, are you listening? Why does this hurt so bad? We want to question what he's done. But Jesus, in his final words, gave us the ultimate clue. No. When you feel abandoned by God, he is working He is moving in you. He's working in your own heart. There's circumstances that he's orchestrating that all lead to renewal and beauty. 
So our, our table today is in the back of the room. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand with me and, and accept the invitation of Jesus. That's really what the table is. It's an invitation to accept that he took our pain. He's with us in our brokenness. He is identifying with you better than anyone intimately what it feels like to hurt. And in that hurt and in the struggle, whatever's happened, whatever the job situation, he's with you. He hasn't abandoned you. And he's working life. He's moving in a way that's covering you and leading you into life. And the invitation was with a chalice, a, a, a cup of wine, and broken bread at the dinner. Eat and drink of this to experience, to take into you what I've done for you. So that's our invitation today. And with that, if you are exploring faith and you're just not sure, you are welcome to stay in your seat. Please don't feel obligated to participate. If you want to just investigate a little further what we believe, the story of Jesus, you're just so welcome to do that here. If you are responding today to the full story that God's never abandoned me, even when I think he has, he hasn't. He's moving me toward life always. And that is the core of what the cross was. He invites you to his table to take the element, the cup, and the bread and to take into you the sacrifice of Jesus that covers you from your brokenness and leads you into a future that is beautiful. And with that, you're invited to stand with me. The table's in the center of the room. If you'll take the bread and the cup back to your seat, in just a moment, I'll lead us in the eating and drinking together. You're invited to the Lord's table. Pray with me. Jesus, everything was so intentional about your Passion Week. When you broke the bread and you passed the cup, the disciples were so confused. You said that even though they don't understand in the moment, they will. Following the cross, they will understand. You were inviting us not to just remember with these physical elements, you are inviting us to take into ourselves your freedom, your life that is always at work, even in this painful world, in the challenges we face, in the struggles. You are always at work to renew, to make life where there hasn't been life. And it's only something that you could have done, Jesus. And so we hold this, this piece of bread, this broken piece of wafer. And as we eat it, we, we say yes to you. We praise you. We thank you. We live our lives to worship you. That is what we do. Let's eat together. The disciples didn't realize that Jesus, just hours later, following this meal, would become the lamb, the permanent lamb, not temp no longer temporary. He would cover every part of our human brokenness. 
this covering by his blood would allow us to step into the space of God, growing in the character of God, becoming more like him, expressing the life of God to the world around us. So that is what we say yes to, Jesus. That is what we thank you for. And again, we live our lives now to worship you, the Lamb of God who makes all our brokenness whole and right. Let's drink together. The last couple of lines of the morning before we close the song, Matthew 28, Jesus' last words to the disciples. Teach them to faithfully follow all I have commanded you and never forget that I am with you always even to the completion of this age, you will not be abandoned. No matter what's happening, what you're facing, I will always be with you working life and using you to work life in what is broken, in what is dark. Okay, let's, let's finish worshiping together. I love you guys so much.